Welcome and welcome back. You came back. It's awesome. I am so glad you're here. Last week we began our study with prayer. Tonight we're going to do the same thing. We're going to begin with prayer and uh, I'll review some housekeeping stuff. Uh, for anybody who wasn't here, we'll get you caught up and then we'll dive right into our goal tonight is to cover letters two and three of the screw tape letters. And again, I'm just super excited you're here. This is like a dream come true. This is so great. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks because today is a gift that has come from your hand. And we receive it as such. We give you thanks for the meal we just enjoyed. And thank you, Lord, for the chance to gather around round tables and maybe meet somebody we didn't already know. Or get to know somebody that we did know a little better. But to break bread together as your people is a privilege that we don't take for granted. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. Some of whom may not have the means to have a meal. We pray, God, your mercy upon them. Your grace upon your people that you would make us generous and willing to go to the uttermost parts of the earth to declare your glory. Lord, just now, we pray you to uh, engage our, our, our minds and our hearts not to get a, a larger portion of C.S. Lewis, not to uh, get greater love for Lewis, but that we might get a greater and deeper love for you. And thank you for your servant, uh, C.S. Lewis, to whose uh, work we turn our attention tonight. We pray this blessing over this group in Jesus' name. Amen. Some housekeeping things. If you did not receive a order of how we're going to proceed, I call it a syllabus, and I think that scared people. So um, just a uh, you know a list of how we're going to go about and what you're supposed to read before. That, I mean that's a syllabus. But anyway, um, before tonight, uh, letters two and three would would have been the assignment. If you didn't, don't feel guilty. You can just pick back up next week. Don't forget we're going to view and discuss that Jerry Root video. I'll be preaching at a, uh, a collegiate event in Meridian, Mississippi, and uh, Jackie's going to uh, help show this uh, video and then uh, guide some discussion about it. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you're not familiar with Jerry Root, you don't want to miss it. And then uh, we'll, we'll come back then on the 25th with letters 4, 5, and 6. If you did not sign in last week, would you mind, before you leave signing in, there's clipboards right over there, uh, Jackie, give a wave, right over there on that table, thank you, are where the clipboards are, and if you sign in, we've got your, your email and your number, if you didn't, if you'll give us email number, what's bound to happen in spring in Coleman, Alabama, is there'll be a, a tornado warning or something, I hope not, but it could be that uh, a cancellation or a last minute you know, change, we want to make sure we have everybody's information that we can... Uh, keep you up to date on that. Some announcement. Books. The books came in. A, a new shipment came in. So if you do not have one, grab one tonight. The cost is $10. If you called the church office, it looks like there's plenty, but if you did call the church office to make sure uh, uh, and you had carry reserve one, they've probably got a reserved stack with your name on it. That's okay, but it looks like there's plenty. So just take advantage of that. Uh, some people asked about videoing. Uh, the, the gentleman you saw in here earlier was named Vance. He does a great job helping us out, and he's going to record it again. He's who also gets it edited, processed, and put up on YouTube. I hope that's helpful to you. 
It uh, got put up, I think, by about Saturday last week. He thinks now that the channel's up and running, it could be even earlier. So hopefully by Friday or Saturday of each week, that video will be available. If you missed it, or if you just want to watch it again, or if you want to watch it again on YouTube at 2x speed, and you can watch the whole thing in 30 minutes, and I'll talk so fast. It'll be fun. It's also on our podcast if you want to get it that way and just listen audio. Okay? One last thing, if you uh, don't have a copy of it or you just want to hear it in an audiobook format, format um, there's a link in the comment of this uh, uh, YouTube uh, video to the screw tape letters on the Gutenberg Project, which is a uh, uh, legitimate and free way to view it, as well as you can hear the audiobook read by this uh, John Creese, this old, old-timey uh, British reading. And so if you want to make, uh, take advantage of that, check that out in the in the link. Well, I guess if you're actually watching this on video, on the link below, and hit that subscribe button. I don't know. Isn't that what they always say? Uh, uh, like and subscribe. I don't know what that means, but if, if, please do that if, it's, if, if you're supposed to. Okay. That's it. That's all housekeeping. Let's get to it. Okay. Uh, we'll see if it's too ambitious to try to do two, <laughs> because we're going to do three in two weeks. So. Uh, last left the correspondence of the preface and letter one uh, previously on Screwtape Letters. Uh, Uncle Screwtape was trying to help Wormwood make sure the patient does not become a Christian. And you'll remember his, his main technique was not so much to try to argue with him. In fact, don't argue with him. Don't actually try logic because <clears throat> once the person begins thinking logically and thinking critically. The problem with using logic and an actual honest seeking of the truth is, and even the enemy knows, truth is on God's side. Jesus says, see, and you'll find. So he knows, don't, don't, don't go down the road of actual logic and thoughtful argument. Uh, that's the worst thing you can do. Instead, you may remember, instead, just distract him. Keep him fixated on what Screwtape calls the stream, the steady stream of news, which in 1941, can you imagine they came out with news once a week? Now it's like once a second, right? If that. So keep him focused on that stream, and you'll, he says, have your man. Well, we now turn our attention to letter two, and spoiler alert, despite all of Wormwood's best efforts, it didn't work. Our man has become a Christian. Woo! Here we go. <clears throat> Before I read this uh, first portion here, uh, to understand this chapter, I think it will be helpful, if you can, to imagine or think back to your own experience as a brand new Christian. Uh, for those of you who grew up in church, right? I mean, some of you, uh, you, you grew up, you, you, you've been in church your whole life. It may uh, not quite resonate with your experience, but for those of you who are maybe saved later in life or maybe the experience of, uh, maybe, you, I don't know, maybe you went off to college and you, you began visiting a new church or you, you began taking your faith seriously, whatever, uh, ask yourself, can, can you remember what it was like that first time you, you either went into it to that new church or um, when you first became a Christian, was, was the church you joined, did it, did it meet your expectations? Did you have accurate expectations? Was there something wrong with, maybe, maybe it wasn't the church, maybe it was your own expectations. So uh, it'll be helpful to put yourself back in that place as we think about letter two, where he focuses on uh, the man becoming a Christian in his new church. Here we go. <clears throat> My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient 
is become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. Let me pause there. I, I love C.S. Lewis's, I, you gotta love, C.S. Lewis's version of hell is not, um, uh, you know, pitchforks and, and, and it's not that he doesn't imagine screw tape and wormwood in this sort of, you know, brimstone and all these uh, medieval torture devices around. His version of hell is a bureaucracy. You know, it's office politics for all eternity. And the more you think about it, the more hellish it sounds, the more accurate the whole thing is, right? Petty, backstabbing, there's penalties, there's, there's these petty rewards when you uh, do well as a tempter, and there's uh, 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 penalties when you fail. And part of the penalties, you'll see this throughout the screw tape letters, this theme of um, devouring. The strong want to devour the weak. So the, 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 these senior tempters want to get more and more powerful so ultimately they can devour these weaker junior uh, tempters. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world of petty office politics and bureaucracy. What a perfect image, right, of this place. So here's what he writes. Let's make the best of the situation. Now, guys are Christian, but let's pick up the, where we left off. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. Whoa. What do you think he means by that? Don't worry, he became a Christian. That's all right. Lots of them, hundreds. Now think about the billions and billions of people who've been on the earth and uh, uh, worm, uh, a screw tape here says hundreds. I don't, know, I don't know what's embedded in that. But Hundreds, once, once they've had a brief sojourn, in other words, once they've hung out in, as, as Christian a little bit, that's all right, we've been able to get them back. What do you make of that? Does, uh, does C.S. Lewis believe that, that this guy can really come back to Satan's side? In other words, does Lewis believe you can lose your salvation? I don't think so. For what it's worth, I personally do not believe a truly saved person can lose their salvation for this reason. They didn't initiate the rescue they can't lose the rescue. How could Almighty God mess up? How could Almighty God let loose of someone he's saving? I believe, uh, some people re refer to this doctrine as once saved, always saved, right? Um, I, I, you know, in, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, right? I mean, look, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so uh, I take this to mean uh, once saved, always saved. I'll say another uh, word about that in just a second. But So what's he referring to then? This uh, uh, That's okay. After a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp, and now they're safely with us in hell. Um, I wonder if maybe Screwtape here is referring to two. There, I think there's two possible things going on here. One is uh, Uncle Screwtape may be referring to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Do you remember this one? Jesus says... Uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a guy going out to, to, to sow the seed, and he sows the seed, and some of it falls on the rocky ground, and that, that never takes root at all. And he describes these four different soils, including, the, I mean, the, the, the hard path. When he gets to the rocky ground, do you remember what he says? He says, some of this seed, the seed's the word of God. There's nothing wrong with the word of God. It falls on the rocky soil, and so what happens? It immediately springs up, totally full of enthusiasm, and but... Because it's in rocky soil, it can't get any root. And so the minute tribulation comes and the minute uh, things really start heating up, they wither away and it turns out they had no root and were never really 
uh, uh, never really uh, took root. So I wonder if Screwtape here is, is, is hoping that maybe this is someone Jesus says, uh, as he explains the parable, right? This is a person where that root was never really uh, taken. I wonder if Screwtape here is hoping that it's one of those. And perhaps you've known people like that. They, 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 it seems like there is a conversion, and it really seems like maybe, maybe at first they really show signs of growth and sprouting, and then they turn away. Uh, so it, it could be he's imagining there the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. Or it could be, remember what Lewis said at the beginning. Remember what he said in the preface. Here you have Screwtape going, that's okay that he became a Christian. Maybe we can get him back. Remember what Screwtape said in the beginning? The devil, remember, is a liar. So we shouldn't take everything that he says as true, even from his perspective. Let me see if I get the quote exactly right. <clears throat> Readers are advised to remember the devil is a liar. Not everything Screwtape says should be assumed to be true, even from his own angle. This is the second paragraph of the preface, or third. After all, at the bottom of the paragraph, there is wishful thinking in hell as well as on earth. So this may be an example of uh, what Lewis is talking about there, where Screwtape just sort of has wishful thinking, like he hopes he can get him back even though he can't. Some people ask, well, you know, once saved, always saved. Somebody might press me on that. Somebody might challenge me on that. That's not a doctrine that uh, not necessarily every uh, Christian holds to that. And somebody might say, preacher, well, what about these folks that, uh, you know, they, they sure look like they had a sincere salvation experience, and then years down the road, they just, they just left the faith. What about that? If, if once saved, always saved. I would say, well, that just demonstrates that there was never true faith in the beginning. I believe in once saved, always saved. And if you say, what about those who don't make it to the end? I would say faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the foundation. Right? I need to say it again. Faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the foundation. And I'll just say one more thing about this before we move on to the next paragraph. That once saved, always saved thing sometimes drives me crazy because once saved, always saved is a true statement, in my opinion, that always seems to be glommed onto by the exact wrong people who need to hear it. It never fails. It's clomped onto by the exact wrong people who need to hear it. The sweet 89-year-old saint in the nursing home who is no longer able to come to church because she's shut in, her faith grows weary and she longs to be with God's people and she begins to wonder, maybe I'm, maybe I'm doubting, maybe I'm not. She needs to be told, hey, once saved, always saved. If he got you, then he's got you. If he can save you, he can keep you. You were saved by grace. You're going to remain by grace. Hang in there, sister. Once saved, always saved. That's who needs to hear it. That's never who hears it. The person who hears it is like, doesn't care anything about God, living totally for themselves, and like, man, you're like living for the devil. What are you doing? Like, what makes you think you're going to be okay? Yeah, it's all right, preacher. I said a prayer when I was six, and once saved, always saved. Woohoo! Like, that, that, that's who ends up hearing it, right? And you go, are you kidding me? No, 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 no. So that's, uh, uh, that's what I think is going on there in that particular passage. After all, he says, all the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Ah, what a great point. Uh, how many of you know that the reality of muscle memory? I was, uh, I was uh, maybe five years ago, six years ago, I was reading this running magazine. And the article was, you've been tying your shoes wrong this whole time. And I was like, I have? <laughs> and so I've been reading. I've been tying my shoes now for, Jackie, when did I move out of Velcro? It was, I mean, <laughs> long time. 
long time. And I'm, I'm reading this article, and they're like, yeah, if your laces, some of you, this is going to be the most valuable thing in all, the whole syllabus. This is what you're going to take away. But if you do it right, your laces flop gently on either side of the shoe. Instead, many of you, your laces go up and down like this. So if you just, you just flip the very first loop, they'll flop politely down to the side. Some of you are like, that, that changed my life. Pretty sure I'm so grateful to you. <clears throat> and so uh, I started doing it, and I started tying it wrong. Do you know how difficult it is to change the way you tie your shoes after you've been doing it a certain way for so long? It's almost impossible. And so I'm down there like, come on. You can do this. Jackie's like, what are you doing? Trying to tie my shoes. He's like, oh, no. You're going to call a neurologist. Like, what's happening? It's like, no, I'm trying to do it different. So what was happening was my muscle memory, it was so hard because it's like, like what I want to do, I find that I don't do because there's this, it's almost like this power is in me. This, this habit is so ingrained in the old way of doing it that it's so hard to put on the new. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I find myself not doing. And I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. Why? It seems like i got this power of sin that still dwells within. See, those habits, you didn't get where you are overnight. Sanctification, the process of being made holy, spiritual formation, which is, by the way, what this whole book is about. Because he's already a Christian in chapter, uh, letter 2. So we've now got from 2 to 31 to talk about how do you grow as a Christian. Sanctification is a process. And so the enemy wants to uh, drill down on those habits that are still very much like the old nature. Martin Luther, <laughs> allegedly Martin Luther um, uh, has this quote that uh, my old nature was supposed to be drowned in the waters of baptism, but it turns out he's a good swimmer or something like that. You know, I, Who knows? Uh, apocryphal. Maybe some of you can source that. But the He's right. There's, these habits are still in. So what are we going to do? Paragraph 2. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Ugh. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean... like How could the church be an ally of the devil? No. <clears throat> do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners, that, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. <laughs> All your patient sees is the half-finished red brick four-column across from the courthouse item on Highway 31. Oh, sorry, half-finished sham gothic erection on a new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a regular an oily expression on his face bustling up to him to offer him a shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. <laughs> so here he expects this great thing, and instead it's like, well, this is just a building, and that's just, that's just PowerPoint with some words up there, and they're singing, right? Um, let's just pause. And consider how glorious it is that Screwtape even admits he's scared to death when he thinks about the church <clears throat> the way God sees the church. Invisible, powerful as an army throughout banners. You know, there's a, there's a story in the 1940s, a guy named uh, uh, John uh, Reith. Reith, right? I don't know how to say it. Uh, R-E-I-T-H. Lord, Lord Reith. You know, they, they, they got lords and, and ladies and all that. Um, baron, I think he was a baron. 
Anyway, uh, Lord Reith was a, you know, came from a, his dad, I think was a Scottish Presbyterian minister, and he had Presbyterian. And uh, anyway, he started a little, a little uh, TV station you may have heard of there in England called the BBC. And he's behind its development. And if you've ever seen an interview, old black and white interview with this guy, I mean, he's just larger than life, really, really tall, and got that, you know, that amazing accent. And he, um, he felt it very important that the, the, the television that he produced had a moral quality. And so a lot of what he did was religious programming. And he would be in these board meetings as, as it grew in popularity, as England changed, as Europe becomes more and more secularized, there is this story of these board meetings where they were fighting him about religious programming. We do not need to offer that religious programming. People don't want that religious programming. There is a legend of being in this board meeting when they're fighting this out, and one of these young executives finally had enough, and he looked at uh, John Reith, and he says, the, the secular programming we want is the wave of the future. This is what he says. Uh, uh, secularism is on the way in, and the church is on the way out. Legend has it, Reith stands up all six feet six of him, and he says, young man, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And it will. And the church will stand at the grave of CNN and Fox News. The church stood at the grave of Rome. The church will stand one day, if the Lord tarries, at the grave of the United States of America. There's not a nation, there's not a spot on this globe. But the church will endure. He's absolutely right. And Jesus said, upon that confession, Peter, that, that, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church on that faith confession. And he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Mighty. You're part of it. But fortunately, all that's quite invisible to humans, right? So, yeah, you just... Uh, <clears throat> What does he say? Yeah, you just sent him to this place. Oh, and when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he's hitherto avoided. Show of hands, how many of you gone to church and saw the very people you've been trying to avoid? I just wanted to see if any of you would raise your hand. <laughs> I'm with them now! Yeah. <laughs> you guys all passed my little test. <laughs> but, but not for nothing. Like, it is. I mean, listen, I love that we crowd in here. I love these round tables. I love that meal. And that's part of it. Like, that's the deal. As, as part of wealth and part of power is you can be more exclusive, right? You can, be, you can go to this little getaway in the Bahamas, and, and it's very exclusive. And you go to this resort, and you can have this special, you know, everybody else has to take a bus, but you can take a taxi, or you don't have to take a taxi. You can take a helicopter. You know, you kind of grow in exclusivity. Uh, but the church is like, it's, it, it's, the doors are just wide open, and you're forced to be with people that you might not look the same. Hey, you might not vote the same, you know? You might not, you, you, I know it's a little thing, but you, you know, there's, there's Alabama, there's Auburn, and they eat at the same table, you know? Paul said in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male, male nor female. That's, that's worth noting. I don't, I don't know where else in the world you get that. So it's like the church may just be the, <laughs> the last hope for the world. It is. Well, anyway, you want to leave. I got to move a little more quickly. You, 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 you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. 
It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. See, you may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. You're patient. Thanks to our Father below is a fool. Provided that any one of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chants or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that well, their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. <laughs> Can you imagine? Have you ever even heard of something that is ridiculous and pointless and meaningless, and yet it was used by the devil in a church to divide Christians? <laughs> Come on. That's the thing about screw tape. You read this and you're like, how is this guy no... Something meaningless. You look around and you go, well, you know, just, just because it's weird, it must not, it must not be true. Or just because I wouldn't do that. Or, you know, you get distracted by little things. See, at his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact, which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of, you know, togas and sandals and armor and bare legs. And the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is a real, though, though of course an unconscious, difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you'll have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Ugh. I don't think nowadays when people go to church, I don't think their expectation can be... Here's how I think Screwtape does this in 2023. I think when people go to church, their expectation of Christian is not... They're not coming out of secular Europe. You know, this is Coleman. You know, churches everywhere. There's sort of a churchy culture around. I hope, I hope you'll, you'll grant me that. So they're not coming out of a secular world where they've never met Christians before. And suddenly they see them and they're like, well, I was imagining, you know, the, the, the togas and the, the Roman soldiers battling and all that. These are just, I don't think that's it. I think when people come now, uh, I think the great uh, uh, expectation that Satan exploits is when people go to church, they expect to meet nice people. And they're shocked when, like, the people at church, like, they are shocked that when people become a Christian, they don't immediately become nice. Like, you won't believe what she did to me. And she goes to church. <laughs> I was going to be like, time out. What did you expect? Well, it, I mean, if they go to church, they should be nice. They should know better. That's the church. You know what a church is, right? It's a bunch of humans who have freely admitted that they need grace so bad that on their own moral merit, they would split hell wide open. That they have freely admitted they are rotten people. They sing it about themselves, like in their hymns. Every Sunday, you're basically dealing with the dregs of humanity who realize they're the dregs of humanity. You realize that, right? They just cry out for God's grace. Well, they should be nuts. You're not hearing me! That's the point. Yes, they should grow in sanctification. No, I'm not defending people being hypocritical. I just want to be clear that I think Satan uses expectations uh, that, uh, uh, well, that he tries to keep from the person, keep them blind. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. If you're a note taker, <clears throat> Uh, and you, you've already read it, but this will be a good way to sort of quiz yourself. Before we go on, the answer is going to be given at the end of this paragraph. But before we go on, guess, see if you can guess ahead of time, how does God use disappointment for his own purposes? 
So Satan says, work hard on that disappointment. Now he's starting to go to church, and he is going to be totally let down. Work on that. How's God going to use it? And, 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 and you might think, you might ask yourself this question, or if you want to discuss this later with a group of friends, ask yourself, how many times has God used disappointment by the, uh, excuse me, how many times has Satan used disappointment by the church? Preacher let me down. This person let me down. Over and over. The church will let you down. She's not perfect yet. She's not made completely in the image of Christ. But how many times has that, well, watch what happens in this paragraph and think about that mentality. We all know people. It breaks your heart. It breaks my heart. The church let me down. I'm talking about people late in life that have given up years ago because, quote, they let me down. Watch this paragraph. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs, you know, when the boy who's been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and begin, you know, the real task of learning to live together. <laughs> uh, that may be true for you. That's not true for me. I'm still, it's just honeymoon and I just, it's still the delight. In every department of life, it marks this transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The stuff looks great on paper, and so you start, and then when you really do it, it's hard. It's, you know what would be a good example? It'd be like if you took a class on C.S. Lewis on a book, and it lasted till April. It's like the idea of this is awesome. The actual listening to the guy read through this and talk about it is laborious. The enemy, it's true. The enemy takes this risk. In other words, why would God do this? He has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls his, quote, free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses Ugh, with his inveterate. That word means deep-rooted. His inveterate love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. <laughs> Satan thinks it's beneath God's dignity to have anything to do with us odious little vermin. I'm so glad he loves us. Well, desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to, quote, do it on their own. Huh. And there lies our opportunity. <clears throat> now, I want you to ponder that. Uh, uh, there's, the minute you're saved, there's justification. All right? God declares a guilty sinner as righteous in his sight. That's justification, the minute you're saved. Then, after justification, begins the lifelong process of sanctification. Do you realize God, if he wanted to, he could just take justification and he could, for you, without you lifting a finger, he could make, boom, immediately to the final state, which is glorification. Everybody got those terms in your head? We start out as a Christian, we're justified. Justification takes but a moment. Sanctification takes a lifetime. Glorification happens when Christ returns. We go to be with God. You with me? He could just take you from justification to glorification. Why wouldn't he? For some reason, he wants sanctification to be, as Jerry Bridges says, Jerry Bridges has a great quote, sanctification, <coughs> holiness, is the human's joint venture with God. Holiness is the human's joint venture with God. God wants to partner with you in holiness. Because, because we know there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, there's nothing you can do to justification, we often think that after you're saved, there's nothing God wants you to do. That's not true. 2 Timothy 4 says, train yourself to be godly. Yes, the Holy Spirit could zap you with all that, but that's like going to a weight room and going to the personal trainer, New Year's resolution. All right, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Ready to get strong? I'm ready. Oh, these weights are heavy. I tell you what, personal trainer, you lift all these weights for an hour. Let's do it that way. That's fine. And they could, 
But their job is actually to get you stronger. And that's what, and that's what Screw Tape points out. There also lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. Now, how many of you know that? How many of you have experienced that? Once you, once you power through that initial dryness, you suddenly find you're much less dependent on the early emotions of becoming a Christian. And therefore, you're much harder to tempt. Now, I've been, I've been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course, if they do, in other words, I've been talking about people letting each other down for petty reasons that don't matter. But obviously, if, if you're actually sending it, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with the squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, well, then your task is so much the easier. All you then have to do is keep out of his mind the question, well, huh. If I, being what I am, can consider that I'm in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? It's <laughs> a pretty good question, isn't it? Well, if I, if I can get in here by grace, why, why would I think anybody else shouldn't also be afforded that same grace of God? That's an obvious question to ask. And so Screwtape writes, you may ask whether it's possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood. It is. <laughs> I love that. Humans are, they don't think. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. See, he's not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees about his own sinfulness, is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he's run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted. And he thinks he's showing great humility and condescension. That word means to come down. In going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all, keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Whew. Mm -mm -mm. It's so easy, isn't it, to highlight the hypocrisy of others and ignore the hypocrisy of ourselves. I may have talked to you guys about this before, but we live on these ladders, I'm convinced. I'll draw out a couple ladders here. And it seems to me that sometimes, when it suits us, sometimes we tend to always look up the ladder at others. And other times, we always look down the ladder at others. And here's what I mean. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you can see this, but you can probably guess what I'm drawing, right? You've got a ladder here looking up and a ladder over here looking down. And here's what we tend to do. Because it all comes down to what, and we'll get to this in the next letter, Self-justification. That's what screw tape wants. Pride, self-justification, no self-awareness. When it comes to the issue of wealth, we tend to look up the ladder. When it comes to the issue of morality, we tend to look down the ladder. In other words, when we compare ourselves to others, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? If you ask somebody, are you wealthy? Are you wealthy? Where does your mind go? Well, I mean, I, I, I do all right, but I'm not, now, now Bill Gates is wealthy, right? LeBron James, we always go up the ladder. Now that's real wealth. I mean, I, I do all right, but come on, there's a lot of people that have a lot and they should be more generous and we're looking up the ladder. It's very difficult to say, are you wealthy? And you look at the world's poverty and you go, you yeah. know, yeah, quite frankly, yeah. but when it comes to morality, we do the opposite. Are you a moral person? Well, now listen, preacher, I ain't perfect, but let me list the human vermin that exists way down here, right? We always, well, at least I'm not. Hey, I'm better than, right? So we tend to look up the ladder of wealth, down the ladder of morality, and in doing so, we play right into Screwtape's hands, who wants us to have exactly zero 
self-awareness, or as he calls it, humility. All right, I do think it is ironic, and uh, we got uh, about 16 minutes left. You guys are doing great. I think it's just delightful, and I know Lewis did this on, perfect, uh, on purpose, that when the guy gets saved, the first two areas of temptation that Satan's going to come after, his first two weapons, are the church and his home. And so sure enough, we've turned now from church in letter two to relationships, particularly with his mother. So you got it in us? One more letter? Okay. My dear Wormwood, I am very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother. But you must press your advantage. The enemy will be working from the center outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard, and may reach his behavior to the old lady at any moment. So you want to get in first. You know, keep in close touch with our colleague Glubos, who's in charge of the mother, and build up between you in that house a good, settled habit of mutual annoyance. Daily pinpricks. The following methods are useful. Now, do we really, are we really about to read a letter on living in a home with daily annoyances? Pinpricks? This one's going to sting, guys. <laughs> I just want to point out one line in that paragraph. He'll be working, the, God works from the center outward, gradually being more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard. Standard there, I think, means the standard as in the standard bearer of an army, the flag, the team. When you become a Christian, you are now in a whole new identity. You're part of a whole new family. And so what's going to happen is you've brought all your old behaviors in, but through sanctification, you're now going to learn how to live into the reality of who you now are. <clears throat> you've been adopted into a new family. A simple illustration will help. Perhaps you, let, let's use the example of adoption. And let's say that you came from a home where they solved their problems with, with, with violence and they cursed at each other and there was always yelling. You're adopted into a new home through that long and lengthy uh, procedure. And when you become a new home, you're given a new last name. And now uh, uh, at the dinner table, something makes you upset. And you jump up and you're ready to punch your new adopted brother or sister. And suddenly you're told, whoa, 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 whoa. You're in a new family now. We don't do it that way. We don't solve our problems that way. Why? You're now going to have to learn how to live in this new family. Well, that's what happens when you become a Christian. You've got all your old habits. You've got all your old ways of doing it. But now you've been declared righteous. And as Soren Kierkegaard once said, and now with God's help, I shall become myself. What he meant was, I'm now going to be who God declares me to be. So here we go. How does, Satan, how does the enemy want to mess that up? Daily pinpricks. Mutual annoyance. Here's the first one. Keep his mind on the inner life. Uh, in other words, you ever met, uh, uh, you don't have to name names or anything. You ever met somebody who's like more spiritual than God? <laughs> that's what that's what Screwtape's trying to get this guy to be. Super spiritual guy instead of just humble prayer guy. Keep his mind on the inner life. See, he thinks his conversion is something inside him. And so his attention is therefore chiefly turned at present to the states of his own mind. Or rather to that very expurgated, that word means uh, censored, cleaned up, version of them, which is all you should allow him to see. Encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of the facts about himself, which are perfectly clear to anyone who's ever lived in the same house or worked in the same office. 
Come on, anybody? I may have blind spots, but I can't see them. That's a good line. I'm surprised it landed. No self-awareness at all. He's saying keep the guy so spiritual that he can't even see what's so obvious to everybody else. Example of this, I read in the John Orberg book where a guy uh, wanted to get super, super spiritual, so he did a retreat of silence. <laughs> and as he's at this retreat center, because he practiced silence, there's other retreats going on and different, it's a spiritual, you know, the camp setting. They're different, and they're in the cafeteria. He's getting his food. And because, he, he, because he's practicing silence, you know, uh, everybody's serving him. They don't know he's doing this retreat of silence, and, every, and he's just looking at them. And so the people are like, well, you know, you could say thank you. And he's like, you know. And then he walks out, and he bumps into somebody accidentally, knocks this lady down, but because of the retreat of silence, just walks off and leave, right? Doesn't say anything. So here you got a guy who has hurt a lot of people's feelings and offended all these people and sinned against them. In uh, Why? Because he was trying to get more spiritual. That's what screw tape wants, that kind of nonsense, right? I'm not knocking a retreat of silence. Uh, maybe a retreat of silence would, uh, maybe, maybe it would benefit me, actually. It is no doubt, number two, it is no doubt impossible to prevent his praying for his mother, but we have means of rendering the prayers innocuous, uh, ineffective. Make sure that they're always very spiritual. You know, they're always concerned with the state of her soul and never with a rheumatism. Two advantages will follow. In the first place, his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins, by which, with a little guidance from you, he can be induced to mean, you know, any of her actions which are inconvenient or irritating to himself. <laughs> How great is that? Do we not often determine that somebody else has sinned against us when, in fact, they just annoyed us? Annoyances are not always a sin. The fact that I don't like what you're doing right now is not necessarily a sin. Your bad taste is not a sin. <laughs> but I think it's great that a lot of times we define sin as you're just annoying me. You know? Um... Where were we? Ah, uh, yeah. So if you get her to get him to keep focusing on those sins, then thus you can keep rubbing the wounds of the day a little sore, even while he's on his knees. The operation is not at all difficult, and you will find it very entertaining. Can you imagine? You're praying for somebody. All right, I want to pray for this person. I want to pray for him, Lord, because they're annoying me. Particularly that thing they do. That one thing they do, and you're just getting madder and madder as you're praying for him. Satan's laughing. In the second place, since his ideas about her soul will be very crude and often erroneous, he will in some degree be praying for an imaginary person. And it will be your task to make that imaginary person daily less and less like the real mother, the sharp-tongued old lady at the breakfast table. In time, you may get the cleavage so wide that no thought or feeling from his prayers for the imagined mother will ever flow into his treatment of the real one. Here it is. Talk about more spiritual to God. Here's the payoff. Here's the line. I've had patience of my own so well in hand they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or son's, quote, soul, to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. See? So what's his point? Don't over-spiritualize your prayers. Go humbly to the Lord and pray for him. Number three, when two human... <laughs> please, if you're here with your spouse, please don't nudge them, Okay? When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. This is satanic advice, right? Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that, oh, that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he delikes it, delikes, dislikes it, 
and let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he'll not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that, you know, he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her as he cannot see or hear himself. This is easily managed. This, y'all, this is Richter's first rule of communication. If any of you were in Jackie and my marriage class last year, you heard this before. Richter's first law of communication, never assume you've got the full narrative. Never. Never. Even when you're like, no, I'm sure I have the full narrative. No, you don't. I, every time I think I've got the full narrative, it turns out to be wrong. But the worst offender is this right here. It's text message. Right? Because you get this, and there's no tone, there's no context. You're like, oh, can you believe? Look at this reading into emojis and I mean it's getting out of hand right and you assume right you assume or you assume they didn't text back or you assume and it's possible to spin out of control with this narrative well I know I know why they said that they said that because of this they said that and then when you explain the narrative to somebody else it's always like ludicrous so so you're telling me like like this person hurt you yes and they did it why on purpose and, and you're sure you've got that right couldn't just be they're having a bad day could no they knew what they're doing so do you think you have any blame in this? Absolutely not. All, all's, all I did, anytime you hear that, it's, it's over. Right? <laughs> all I'm saying, and then they read their own text back. And they read it in the most sing-song fairy, like an angel. All I said was, what time do you think I should be there? And she's like, I don't know, I'm running late, obviously, because she's strangling puppies or whatever. Like, no, she's probably not, right? But we build up this massive narrative in our head. Why? Screw tape is winning. He's getting us to assume these narratives. And even if right now you're like, no, I've got a couple that I'm certain I've got the right narrative. You're not hearing me. You never have the full narrative. If that person did you wrong, to whatever percent they're really guilty of, you've tacked on extra. But God will hold them, God will hold them accountable for the percent they really did. Our job is to clean our side of the street. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's hard. It's tough. This stuff is so tough. But that's where I'm like, screw tape. How did, how did you know this stuff happens? Number four, in civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by, and here it is. This is what I meant. Saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. See, the words are not offensive, but they do it in such a voice or in such a moment that they're not far short of a blow in the face. Isn't that true? You can verbally punch some, verbally speaking, punch somebody in the face with just the tone. The words themselves are not, you know, they look innocuous on paper, harmless. To keep this game up, you and Bluebos must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. See, your patient must demand that all his utterances be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words. I'm just saying, have the court reporter read back what I said, right? While at the same time, judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention, she must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can both go away convinced, or very nearly convinced, that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply, I'm just saying, I simply ask her what time dinner will be, and she flies in a temper. Once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. <laughs> Finally, tell me something about the old lady's religious position. Is she, you know, is she at all jealous of the new factor in her son's life? 
at all piqued, uh, where it means uh, irritated, that she should have learned from others and so late what she considers she gave him such a good opportunity of learning in childhood. In, in other words, is, is the lady mad that he's become a Christian? Does she feel he is making a great deal of you know, fuss about her? He's getting on on very easy terms? Remember the elder brother in the enemy's story? Your affectionate uncle. Screw tape. Anybody remember the elder brother in the enemy's story? You know what he's talking about? Good. Yeah, I heard it. Yeah, Luke 15. Story of the prodigal son. And the older brother just couldn't understand why this profligate, this, this prodigal, he gets to go out and, 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 and wild living. And then when he comes back, you know, I, I've, been, I've been, well, he says, I've been slaving for you, father. I've been doing all this. And he just comes on back. Maybe the mother's got a little bit of that pride going, you know, I've, I've been living a moral life all my life. And now you're talking about you're going to get into heaven just because of this grace thing. Maybe she resents that. Well, the first two tools for temptation, the church and home. If you're a note taker or you want to have some questions for reflection, you know, you might think about your own family interactions. What is it from home can be taken away? On letter two, what is it from church? How can we uh, be a people who continually open wide, make everybody uh, uh, feel welcome and try to reset some of those expectations? Made it through two letters. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, Jackie. I really, I can't believe it. I know. Yeah. I can't imagine how we're gonna do three. I guess I'll just have to cover less in each one. Okay. This is an encourager. Thank you. Uh, any questions? I mean, in a group this size, I'm sort of assuming that uh, uh, you're okay with this lecture format. If you have questions on the syllabus, we put mine Jackie's email for that purpose. I thought that'd be a great way to engage. If you had a question, feel free to send it. Um, if you if you have a question, and we got, I mean, we've got two minutes, I'd be glad to field a question or two. But I kind of thought in a group this size, maybe might be a little bashful to ask a question, which I can definitely understand. If not, y'all, I'm going to do something unthinkable and let you out six minutes early. Which I, I know, I know, it's like what is happening? I know, it's crazy, right? Jackie, uh, would you be willing to, uh, once again, last time you closed us in a word of prayer, would you be willing to do that again? Th thanks, everybody, for being here. Any, I I'll stand around up here and uh, uh, speak to anybody, whatever. But, Jackie, if you'll close us out, and uh, God bless you guys. Thanks again. Have a great night.